Papa God, we uh, thank you uh, for this community uh, that we're able to gather uh, as your church, uh, as a family, uh, that we're able to um, encourage one another with our presence physically here in this space, that we are incarnationally present as a community. Just as you uh, sent your son uh, to become Jesus and become incarnationally present with us on this earth. And even now that he is present with us by his spirit. Spirit, we invite you into this space. We ask that you would knit our hearts together. Uh, Though some of us are, are strangers to one another, we ask that you would do this work that you would give us a love uh, for one another uh, that transcends um, disagreements and conflicts. Lord, we ask that you would do this. Uh, Even as we open your word and we study, we ask that you, Spirit, would cause it to come alive for us, uh, that would not be dusty and old, but fresh and new. And we ask that you would do this uh, both for our illumination and our joy and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. All right, so in 2017, my uh, family and I, like, married of three teenage kids, but this was, you know, when they were, like, just before turning teenagers, uh, we had the opportunity to spend some time traveling in Europe. We homeschool, and I didn't technically work for the church at that time. Um, and was mostly doing business stuff, and it kind of worked out. We had a lot of flexibility, so we made it happen. We went and we traveled in Europe uh, for a while. However, we traveled so many different places and for so long that sometimes I kind of lost track of where we actually were, which was fine, because my wife was the navigator. I was just the person who does the, you know, the driving. And um, at one point, we were flying into Greece, and we're going through security or customs or something. I don't really know what was happening. But this guy asked me for my uh, passport, and I give it to him. Oh, and I had gotten separated from my family. They were, like, stuck in cust- like behind me further. So I'm all alone. And I give him my passport, and he's like, where are you? And we were connecting to another flight. And he's like, where are you flying to today, sir? And I was like, I don't know. He hated that answer so much. It was unbelievable. And, uh, and so then he's like, you know, he gets his boss to come over, and he's a scarier guy, like this like, weird like, big beard, and he was like, sir, where are you flying to today? And I'm like, I, I don't know. My wife knows if we can get her to come forward. She can tell you. And he's like, well, where are you flying from? And I was like... You're not going to like this. I'm, it sounds bad. I know. I'm sorry. I'm, Athens? He's like, sir, you are in Athens now. I'm like, oh, okay. So how this gets resolved is mostly suppressed in my mind. I mean, it's like you think about this. This is everything that they've trained for in this moment, right? Here's a guy who's getting on a plane, not too concerned about where it's going to land. Maybe he doesn't think it's going to land anywhere. So I'm like preparing myself for like a strip search. And not a nice private like North American strip search in like a private room. This is a, like a European strip search next to the food court or something, right? Very, very worried about this. But my wife eventually catches up and rescues me, explains that I'm not a competent adult to be trusted with this information. And they're like, they understand. And we, we eventually, we, we were flying to uh, Crete, the island of Crete. And we were there doing stuff. And then we flew back to the mainland and we rented a car and we started driving to these little towns, including the town of... 
Corinth, yes, relevant for today. And the reason I bring this up is because sometimes I know you come to like a church gathering and they're like, blah, 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 Thessalonica, and these made-up sounding places that are really old and a long time ago. And they're like, Corinth is real, the ancient city of Corinth, not modern Corinth. Uh, I have pictures. We were really there. Yes. So my wife took these, I guess. But there's like kind of the landscape, and it's not very big. You go to the next one. They had to dig all this up, I think, because it kind of like, you know, gets buried with time. And uh, it was cool, but it's also it's not enormously huge. Go to the next one. There's me standing there. Proof it's real. Now you can see there's like this little plaquey thing. Zoom in on the plaque. Yes. Okay, so that is a passage uh, from 2 Corinthians 4.17. And it says, For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Um, Obviously, this plaque was added later. (laughs) It wasn't there originally. And I think there was another plaque somewhere that said that where I was standing is where they think Paul stood as he preached to the Corinthians for the first time, the people of Corinth. Um, And as a result of Paul's preaching in that moment, the Holy Spirit moved in the hearts of some of the Corinthians that they gave They repented of their sin, and they gave their hearts over to Jesus. They bent the knee to King Jesus, and Paul then gathered them into a church body. It was very powerful to experience standing there in that moment and to be able to look out and visualize the work of Paul in this way. Perfect. Um, But Paul didn't stay, did he? Paul had the thing of, like, he would, like, preach the gospel The Spirit would move. People would meet Jesus. He would bring them together in a church body. He would organize leadership. He would appoint elders, and then he would leave. This was his calling. Some guys have this type of calling. We would refer to this as an apostolic type calling. Not big A apostolic, like I walked with Jesus, and when I write something down, it becomes the Bible. No, little A, like missionary style apostle, that they go and they start things, and they lay a foundation, and then others come and build on that foundation. That was Paul's type of calling, and we see this as he had this traveling ministry. But that's not to say that he just sort of like forgot about them. No, they were very much on his heart. We can see that he cared for these churches deeply. He prayed for them. He wrote them letters. He wrote the Corinthians two very long letters uh, that we have in Scripture, and there are probably a couple of others that aren't Scripture and that we don't have, but that he, he's addressing issues because he knew from hearing reports, these churches had problems. They had issues. They weren't perfect. And the church in Corinth was no exception. In fact, it was probably uh, the most troubled. They had some really crazy troubles uh, in their churches. And that has provided uh, content for the letters that he wrote to them. And then we, as we've been going through 1 Corinthians, we have sort of been able to use those different things as topics for us to address as we've been going through this series. And so it gets expressed in a bunch of different ways. But in today's particular passage, we see that this is in the realm of conflicts and disagreements within the church between brothers and sisters in Christ. What do we do, what should a Christian do when there is a disagreement with another Christian in the church body? What is the biblical protocol for this? In the city of Corinth, your average offended Corinthian response was, I'm calling my lawyer. 
I'm going to go and get my pound of flesh in court. I'm going to be proven right. That's the standard Corinthian response. Is this appropriate Christian response? We see Paul's answer to this in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Right away, there's something that we should notice here. He says, when one of you has a grievance against one another. Paul expected that there would be grievances in the church, that there would be conflict. And this is why he's addressing this question. If you're a note-taking type of sermon listening person, this would be uh, the first point that you could write down, that the Bible expects that churches are going to have problems. The Bible expects that the churches, that churches are going to have problems, that they're going to have conflicts and disagreements, that this is normal because churches are made up of people, unfinished people, unfully sanctified people. We are being uh, refined into the image of Christ, forged into followers of Jesus, as we say in our Church 21 parlance, but it is a process, and not everyone is at the same place, and none of us are finished, right? In churches, you'll have people who are a few months into this process. You have people who are decades into this process, and even they are far from perfect, right? So we have this mix in the, in the church, and so having conflict as the broken bits of us interact is normal. Now, our church is about 12 years old, and we've had our share of conflicts in that time, and I've had to sit down and meet with people, and they're like, you know, ABC happened, or so-and-so did XYZ, and I'm hurt, and I'm leaving the church. I'm going to go to this church over here. And that, and that happens. Um, and usually, the process for me is like, I'm walking that all the way through with them. In some cases, like, yes, uh, that should not have happened. That shouldn't have happened to you. Um, or this particular thing shouldn't have happened. And kind of like see that through here, everything out, and work it out with them if there's another party involved. Kind of work all that out. But often I also say, you know, the other church that you're looking at, like, the grass isn't greener. Like, you're never going to find a perfect church. And if you think you have, it may just be that they're really good at hiding their problems, which is a whole separate problem. The grass isn't greener. What makes a good church isn't that it doesn't have problems, but that it processes those problems, those conflicts, those disagreements, all the way through in a really healthy and biblical manner to the point of resolution, not sort of stacking up wounds and bitterness and sweeping stuff under the rug uh, for years and years and years. And doing that, I mean, there's a reason that some churches or some people don't do that. It's, it's hard work. It's uncomfortable work. But there is a biblical way to handle these things and Paul doesn't address it here, but we have in Matthew chapter 18 a sort of the, the standard biblical response. Most of you, should, many of you perhaps are familiar with this passage. Um, so we're going to look at it. Maybe you hear it afresh. If it's new to you, you can, if you have Bibles, you can jump over to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to hang out here for a moment, and then we'll go back to 1 Corinthians. So Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, Gospel Matthew chapter 18. And I'm going to start reading in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence or two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church... 
Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So this basically boils down to like four steps to addressing a conflict or disagreement in the church uh, in a biblical way. First, go to the person privately and try to work it out, uh, to seek reconciliation, to don't assume anything. People process conflict in different ways. Um, Some people may not even be aware that there is an issue, right? They may not be aware that they've hurt you or that you are upset. I'm like mildly Osberger, so I'm not good with like nonverbal social cues. And so my wife has to tell me when someone is upset with me. And she doesn't know, you know, if she doesn't notice, it could be weeks. And you'd be like, I'm so upset with Pastor Brian. And I have no idea. And I just treat you totally normally. You have to tell me, Brian, I'm very upset with you. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, and then I will know. You know, so don't assume, right? Um, There's no verse in the Bible that says thou shalt be passive aggressive, right? That doesn't help anybody. Um, try Try to give them a call or meet with them in person. Don't do this kind of thing by text or by email. Um, address it head-on in grace. Second, if they don't listen, or if they just refuse to meet with you, they won't take your call, they won't engage with it, don't give up. Try again. Try again. It's worth it to persist. And perhaps maybe involve a couple of other people in this to just kind of like apply a little bit more of like community. I don't want to say the word pressure, but like there's a sense of like this matters to the community and not just us. So bring more of the community into it. At this point, you could bring in a city group leader or even a pastor to help try to like move this forward towards reconciliation and healing. Thirdly, if they still won't engage, and it's a serious conflict, a serious issue, it may need to come before the church. And say, like in our church context where we have multiple congregations, you could say, well, it at least maybe needs to come a part of this congregation, that it becomes... uh, everyone becomes aware and begins to um, press for resolution of this thing. Uh, Because remember that unresolved disagreements fester, and the church is a body. If you have a wound on your body, and you ignore it, and you don't deal with it, you don't change the band-aids or dressings or whatever, and then it gets infected, and then what happens? Medical people, come on. What's the next stage of this evolution? Well, <laughs> there's a read. Yes, that is actually where it can go. But before that, you could get blood poisoning or, or sepsis. Yes, sepsis. That is the next stage. He may go right for the, he's like, I haven't changed a Band-Aid. We're cutting it off, right? No, it's, it's, that, is, that is the danger is that you can have sepsis. It can actually cause to great unhealth. It can harm the whole body if a particular member of the body is sick. It can poison a larger element. Uh, not good. Uh, which is why, partly, the last step outlined in Matthew 18 is amputation. You see that. There's a cutting off. There's a cutting off. There's a removal. Not just for the sake of the body, but also for the sake of the member to be like, this is really serious, that this is unresolved. And we love you, and the door is open. When you come back, if you come back, we have to talk about this first. That's essentially what church discipline is. It's not like a public caning or something like that. It's like, This community will become close to you unless you're willing to talk about this particular thing. And you're always welcome to come and talk about this particular thing so that we can resolve it. It's very, very important. Um, Now, sometimes what will happen is people will church discipline themselves in a sense. They'll amputate themselves, and there's not a lot you can do about that. They'll just leave. They'll be like, I know things are not okay. I'm just going to disappear. 
Sometimes they will go to another church body. They're not like, I'm cutting myself off from Jesus, but they'll go to another church body in Montreal. And I have to warn you now, all of the pastors in Montreal, there are not very many of us. We all know each other. And it's not like we're out to get you or like hunting you down, but like if you had an issue with our church, and you're like, I am now going to go to this church, like we will probably still have a conversation with the pastor there and be like, just so you know, like this is an unresolved thing. And they will probably encourage you to come and resolve this thing. And that's the broader body seeking health, seeking uh, unity within the church. Um, so again, churches aren't perfect. Um, maybe the reason that we really want to talk is to even just ask for forgiveness. Maybe we genuinely hurt you as a church in some way. And we want to be able to ask for forgiveness and to be able to seek reconciliation. But to do that, we have to have that conversation. So that is a rough idea of the way that it should go. Obviously, every situation is unique. These things kind of get applied in unique ways. We, we, the Bible is, gives a lot of like, uh, room and breadth to be able to address these things in a way that where love and grace is moving and trumping. Um, but I think, again, the, my point is that Scripture expects us to have conflict, expects us to have disagreements. Just like in any other serious kind of relationship, like a, a marriage relationship, if you come to premarital counseling in our program, they're like, oh, we never fight. We've never had a fight. Red flag. <laughs> you know, like, it, there should be that level of interaction. So back to Paul's question then. When you have disagreements between Christian brothers and sisters, why would you take this outside the church? Why would you go outside the church to seek resolution? Why would you go to court to go before someone who doesn't have the same worldview, doesn't have the guidance of the Holy Spirit to help adjudicate this thing? Does that make sense? This makes no sense according to Paul. Now, the Corinthians may say, but we sometimes we need to get a professional involved. We're not qualified to deal with this thing. Oh, really, says Paul? Verse 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. So Paul says it's to our shame to take things outside the church, these types of issues. Does that mean then that we must keep secret everything bad that happens inside the church? No. No. This is not to say that churches should keep, for instance, criminal matters a secret to keep them out of the court. So only sort of deal with them internally. Uh, it is to the great shame of the church that this has been the case uh, over and over again, that they will use this passage in particular as an excuse for keeping things hidden or secret. And they'll say, oh, we're dealing with it. It's an internal matter for us. There is a lot of stuff that should not be dealt with just internally. Uh, the most obvious and painful example would be the sexual abuse of children. And most notoriously, as that happened in the Roman Catholic Church. You guys would be, I think, aware of that, and we are maybe doubly so aware of that in Quebec, where the Catholic Church held so much power uh, for so long. But this is not just on them. All branches of church and church history have done similar things. That there have been times where leaders have used this as an excuse to be like, you know what, let's not, let's not muddy the water, let's not take this public, we'll just, we'll fix it. We'll deal with it on the inside. 
Now, in our context today, in our society, we live under a rule of law that actually has a lot of systems for dealing with this type of stuff. Child protective services, we had like our kids ministry uh, training yesterday, so I'm going through all the legal stuff of like, here's how we're careful, here's what happens if there's an issue. Like, we live under the system, and the scriptures tell us that the sword of justice is placed by God into the hands of the government that we have that helps uh, preserve justice imperfectly, for sure. But it is a system that is in place. That the, It's not the church's role to execute capital punishment. That would be weird and problematic, right? Um, these types of things happen outside the church, and we are to interface with them. They, they play a part. So for our church, our example then, if we did uncover something with staff or a volunteer, we are going to do all of the things to bring it into the official systems. We're not going to be hiding anything, anything that's required and appropriate by law. Will this kind of thing reflect poorly on the church in the public eye? It will. It'll not be great, Uh, but not half as poorly as it coming out later that we kind of hit it and then we were dealing with it, but we didn't really deal with it and went on longer and then it comes out, right? That is the narrative that we hear so often. Frankly, I think the city might actually see the church in a better light if we actually were forthright right at the beginning. Because their expectation of us on this is so low. They're just going to hide it, and it's going to go on longer than it should have. So Paul's word uh, to us here is a principle, not like a blanket prescriptive, like hide everything. Never let anything get out and stain the reputation of the church. And the wisdom that we have to judge in these situations also should include the wisdom to be able to judge when should something become public, when should something go to the courts, when should the police be called. And when can we deal with it ourselves? So again, most obviously, if the criminal thing and the law actually requires us to report it, we would. We definitely would. But what about non-criminal disagreements and stuff? Paul says to have a public lawsuit is uh, not a good thing. Verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, right? Like financial type stuff. According to Paul, to take someone outside the church on this isn't like win-lose, like one of you wins in court, one of you loses in court. He's like, it's lose-lose. This is bad. This is unnecessary. This is the Corinthians allowing their their identity as Corinthians trump their identity in Christ. They're forgetting who they are. Remember that it's by our love that we have for one another that the world will know that we belong to Jesus. And so it is getting in the way of our evangel, our gospel, the good news, our witness, if we bring stuff like financial upsetness between persons into the courts. This is the big why uh, Paul says it's not a good idea, that the gospel shouldn't be uh, tarnished or impeded or something else get in the way of um, people being able to engage with the gospel. And he's like, honestly, if it's between you uh, getting ripped off and bringing shame on the name of Jesus, just get ripped off, right? Like, you don't, cannot Jesus make you whole? Does he not own everything? Do you have to go and get your money back from so-and-so? Can you not just, like, let it go? Can you not just forgive it? The gospel message being unhindered is basically the main end goal here. And to bring our dirty laundry kind of, like, out into the courts is counterproductive to that. Just to say, oh, I, I was right. I was proven right. Now, by that same metric, bringing internal criminal matters to public light, again, may actually help boost Uh, the reputation of the church, and not be a hindrance to the gospel, but people are actually like, you guys actually care to do the right thing. That's amazing. Sadly, the Corinthians really miss this. 
Continuing in verse 8, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And at such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So Paul is really kind of big, bringing the big stick here to the Corinthians. Um, they had got it into their heads that because of grace, which is a very real and powerful thing, um, they could just do whatever they want because Jesus had paid for their sins, right? Didn't matter anymore. And grace is extremely powerful. Like on a technical level, the death of Christ has separated us from the law. You can no longer sin in a legal sense, redamning yourself. It's not possible, right? Um, as uh, Dwight quoted, I think a few weeks ago, he's like, if you could lose, if we could lose our salvation, we would. We would, if it was up to us, we would, we would lose hold of it. Such a good word. But by no means should we start sinning on purpose, Paul says, right? Um, and even with abandon here as they're like celebrating sin in the Corinthian church. It's ridiculous. Um, those who are truly saved, though there will still be a measure of brokenness and sin in their life until Jesus fully uh, heals us at the resurrection, that, that there is uh, a leaning away from the sin in our life instead of leaning into the sin. That we would be like working with Jesus in the process of sanctification and not against him. So the third point you could mark down today is essentially the gospel. That the bad news is that all people, all of us, are uh, broken, rebellious, and for these things under judgment. And Basically, you don't enter into the kingdom of God because of this righteous judgment against us. And Paul lists out a bunch of examples of rebellious living, and he includes our topic of, of defrauding one another along with drunkenness and reviling and sexual immorality and all of these things. He's saying this, too, fits in this list. Everything he's already been talking to them about. That this was all of us even at some point in our lives, that we acted and we lived out of this identity in this way. And for some of you who have not repented of this, you have not knelt before King Jesus and asked for him to remove this from you, you are still under uh, judgment. You are still under the wrath of God. And if that's you, hear now my words to you. You can be washed. You can be sanctified. You can be justified before God, made perfect and sinless, that your legal record is washed clean by the finished work of Jesus on your behalf, that he will do this for you as a free gift, that he will gift this to you. And it's, if you accept it, it's not the beginning of a religious exercise. You're like, now I'm religious. It's the beginning of a relationship with somebody who has already done all of the work on your half and that he can bring you into heaven, right? To get into a place that you should not be able to get into, I don't know, do you, are there any, maybe this is like too embarrassing, I can't tell. Um, are any of you guys uh, Taylor Swift fans, Swifties? I'm raising my hand to give an example, not because, I, I don't honestly know that I would recognize any of her music. I'm more of the Christian death metal side of things, but the, yeah, <laughs> it's like, uh, um, but it's kind of a big deal. She's like a billionaire now, and she's doing this tour thing. It's like having a cousin who, for whatever reason, can get you backstage at, like, a Taylor Swift concert. 
right? This is like, you shouldn't be there. But because you have a relationship with this person, they're able to get you into somewhere that you shouldn't be. That's what Jesus does for us. We should not be going into heaven at all, but we're actually going like backstage, not just into the show, but like backstage and to perhaps muddy the illustration slightly, rather than getting some sort of VIP lanyard, you are actually issued adoption papers. Not for Taylor Swift, that's weird, but like for the Father, that we become children of the Father and that we can roam freely in the throne room. Amazing. Amazing what Jesus offers us. For those of us who have done this, Paul is reminding them then and us of who we actually are in Christ. More than simply sanctification and salvation, we have also been given wisdom and power and ability by the Spirit living in us. And this brings us to our fourth and final point, that it's because of the Spirit's work in us, we are more than qualified to deal with issues of of many kinds in the church to arbitrate disputes. Paul's argument is to point to the fact that we are ultimately destined for decision-making that is, frankly, beyond our imagining even now. If you look again at verses 2 and 3, he says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that you are to judge angels? We would not actually know that if Paul had not said that in Scripture. It would have been very surprising. We're like, you ready? We're like, what are we doing right now? Like, there's a huge docket. You've got a full load today. You know, like, okay, put on my... You know, like in Canada, they wear those little white wig things. Maybe not in heaven. Um, But like to judge, you cannot comprehend, if you are in Christ, you cannot comprehend what you will be doing like a million years from now. And that really should change your perspective on what you're doing now, today. We are more than qualified. We know now that we don't have a passive eternity ahead of us. You know, it's like you can only strum the harp for so long and you're like, this cloud could be bigger. You know, like, no, we have an active eternity ahead of us. We will be doing things. And I know, like, some of you are tired, and you're like, I can't. I was looking forward to rest. (laughs) You know, like, your resurrected body is going to get bored with sitting on a cloud. You will be filled with power. And the way that Jesus is, like, glowing in the book of Revelation, and his best friend blacks out when he sees him, that person gets bored not doing stuff. Not, we will be co-ruling the the universe with Christ. Co-ruling. And, you know, I, I don't know if you guys have seen, like, the universe, like the Hubble Space Telescope images, or the new James Webb. You guys know about this James Webb thing? It's insane what they're finding, right? And they just keep finding more, and they're like, the universe is getting really big. Uh, Somebody was telling me about someone who was looking at James Webb's images, and they felt a profound sense and need to confess their sin, to apologize, because they just could see the handiwork of something greater than them. I'm not sure they even knew who they were apologizing to, but they were like, I am not worthy. I am a person of unclean lips, as, as Peter would say. There's, there's power in looking at all this, and it's, I mean, it's pretty, but it's also like looks empty, right? We're not seeing aliens and stuff like that. But when Jesus brings heaven and earth creation together again, all of those angels that we'll be judging, all of those creatures, you can picture a universe through the telescope of all of these spinning color lights, but then teeming with life. And we are co-ruling that with Christ. Paul's like, you know, you can up your game now as a, as a person who has this destiny. You can start living that way. And I know if you're new to church, that might all sound a little bit crazy. Um, 
co-ruling the galaxy, all, all this stuff. But let me invite you into that, into that picture. Because I think on a deeper level, I think all of us think that we should be ruling more than we are. In fact, a lot of your lives right now, some of you guys are younger and you're in school, you're in an acquisition phase. You're like, I'm acquiring more knowledge, more experience, saving money, investing, buying stuff, more power, more relationships. You are building like a little kingdom for yourself. Why? That's what human beings do. We build kingdoms because that we are naturally rulers. That's what we were designed to be. And of course, we are evil rulers by default, and yet Jesus makes us into his image where we are servant leaders. We, we rule with gentleness. That's what we are called into. If this, if this is new to you and is appealing to you, I invite you into this. Uh, Jesus doesn't call you into a life that is free of conflict. The church will hurt you. People in the church will hurt you. You will have conflict. We'll work through it. It will be okay. Uh, but Jesus will cast all of your suffering in silver and gold. He can do that. And he'll bring you into the Father's house. And if you want this and you know you're broken, don't try to clean yourself up before you come. Come dirty. Right? None of you, when you have surgery scheduled at the hospital, think, you know, I'm just going to pre, pre-work on it for them. Just get a head start. Right? You show up and you're like, well, I did some, you know, the appendix is loose. You know, you, you, it's downhill from here. And they're like... What? <laughs> you, you have sepsis. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you know. um, Jesus came for those who were hurting, like a, like a, like a doctor. So come, come dirty. Allow Jesus to clean you. He is the professional for this. And then, yes, uh, co-rulers with Christ forever. Um, Psalm 103 says that the Lord is mindful that we are dust. He knows that we're still frail, even though we're called to this destiny. He knows that we're, we're frail. Uh, but he reminds us through Scripture over and over again, you are more. You will be more in my son Jesus. And so therefore, we should see our... The other element that's related to this is the way that we look at our conflicts and when we think about the things that have been done to us that are wrongs, um, they should get smaller. And in a few millennia, they're looking back, they're going to look really small. And I think that gives the church a unique ability to forgive and to digest, and to absorb, and to process these things. Because what seems big to you in your face now gets smaller with an eternal perspective. And that applies across the board in all different areas of life. We are made for bigger things than the common cares of man. Uh, And I know it's easy just to stand up here and be like, you know, I know you have problems and hurts and conflicts. Just figure it out. Just get over it. Some of you may be hearing me say that. And I'm I'm not trying to say that. I know it's hard. I know it's, it can be very, very hard to work some of these things through. It may not be fast. It may not be easy. Um, and yet, what I am saying is that we are willing to walk with you in that so that you are not doing this alone, that we will help you walk through, whether it's, I know there are probably, you know, everyone in this room has hurts and disagreements, and some of these are unresolved. And it may be um, with your parents. It may be with your siblings or other family members, it may be with, within your marriage um, or even within this congregation or your city group, wherever it is, don't allow it to fester. Don't allow it to persist untreated. The enemy loves that and will use that as a lever into your life and into your city group and into this congregation. So let us be a people that like says, you know, this really hurts and I'm going to bring it into the light so that this can be healed. And then trust Jesus and get guidance 
to walk through that process together. Allow the grace of God to permeate that situation and for Jesus to be with you there in that hurt and to move into it with his healing power. And we will never be a perfect people. This will always be like an aspirational thing for us, but we want to be leaning in that direction. We want to be seeking that, leaning into the healing that Jesus offers his bride as he makes us beautiful for himself. Pray with me towards this end. Lord, we thank you that your uh, power is available to us in your spirit, that you give insight and you give wisdom. You made uh, King Solomon the wisest man who ever lived. Wisdom is from you. We ask for it. Lord, I ask that you would protect our church from tarnishing our witness uh, before the city. I ask for bravery to bring things into the light when it is hard. I ask that you would give um, the ability to forgive and absorb the hurt, not to extract uh, what is our, our due, uh, but to be able to follow in your footsteps, Jesus, to absorb and to forgive. Um, ask that you would help us in this, and even now as we respond, um, that you would press these things into our hearts, that we would live out this identity in Christ. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.